Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome Hannah Kent to Books, Books, Books to talk about her most recent novel, Devotion, published in October here by Picador Australia and to be published in the UK in February 2022. Hannah's first novel, Burial Rights, published in 2013, was an international bestseller which has been translated into over 30 languages. It won numerous prizes, including the Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year, the Indie Awards Debut Fiction Book of the Year, and the FAW Christina Stead Award. Her second novel, The Good People, published in 2016, was also historical fiction based on a true story and also a great critical and commercial success, translated into many languages and shortlisted for a number of prestigious literary prizes. Both books are currently being adapted for film, so that's something to look forward to for all of us. Hannah is also the co-founder of the Australian literary journal Kill Your Darlings. She has been published in the New York Times, the Saturday Paper, The Guardian, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, amongst others. There have been some terrific reviews for this book already, although it's only been out for a short time. The Sydney Morning Herald, for example, has described devotion as a tale of the refiguring might of faithful hearts, of love that sustains and love that ruins, of exile and dominion. Hannah, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to start by asking you to tell us what is devotion about? Devotion is the story of Hannah uh, Nussbaum, who is a the daughter of an old Lutheran elder. At the beginning of the novel, uh, she is an, uh, a teenager. Her family have been persecuted because of their insistence on their old religious faith. They're refusing to join the King of Prussia's new Union Church. And uh, as a result, their services have gone into the forest. They've been fined, occasionally imprisoned, and are generally going through quite a bit of oppression. Hannah, however, is someone who is not necessarily too concerned with that. She's someone who is a child of nature, really. She loves the wilderness. She likes to commune with the landscape and the forests surrounding this small village. But she also is something of a loner. She's something of an outsider within this community. And when the book opens, she's at that precarious point in her life where she feels herself being ushered towards the really the only societal role permitted for her to be a wife and a mother within this small closed congregation. Um, she, when shortly after the novel opens, she, however, finds a very dear friend in another young girl called Thea Eichenwald, who comes to the village because her parents similarly are being persecuted and this place is a stronghold of dissenters. Taya and Hannah recognise something in each other. There is acceptance there and the two fall into a fast, into quite a fast friendship. Um, and then just as they feel that they, Hannah has found some sort of happiness in her life, uh, they receive the news that the congregation is applying to emigrate to a very faraway country where they might find religious freedom. Hannah, 
Thank you. Could you uh, read a short extract for us, please? Sure. Nature had always been my whetstone, had always made me keener, and after the congregation reached the foothills, I felt myself sharpened to life. The landscape on the ascent to the ranges was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I had thought the pine forest back in Kay a place of divinity, but this country was infinitely more sovereign. Each morning, while it was yet dark, the birds filled the air with singing so that the sun, when it rose, brought light a symphony. The birds were everywhere, hosts of raucous angels, black-bodied, yellow-topped messengers of shrieking delight, soot-streaked coral masters, feather-fat kookaburras suddenly, alarmingly, proselytising to the dawn. Even the trees grew in such a way as to welcome the sun to the world. In Prussia, canopies were dense and thick, Forest floors were deeply shadowed. Here was a place of lightness. Leaves dappled thin and shiny, fluttered pink, grey, green. I crushed them in my palm and smelled medicine, healing. Hot still days dropped branches, all bone crack, and brought the sounds of bees. Sometimes I smelled honey warming the air. Animals were muscled fur and liquid eyes or scaly thicknesses, tongues darting. All of it. Trees and possums and kangaroos and bright beads of ants circling trunks veered from stillness to flashing movement in an instant. There was energy here, rough softness. Sometimes it rained, and when it stopped, the air was perfume, a clean scent of wet leaf and damp sweetness. I wanted to drink that washed summer air. I imagined it tasted of reprieve. My father, too, was invigorated by everything he saw. He ran his fingers along the ground and filled his nails with soil. God's gifts, he said, smiling at Matthias. Papa's voice in prayer was the first to interrupt the dark. He scaled the ridges with kingdom-come strides and remarked aloud upon the extravagance of sunlight, the yawning orange of rock faces, the views that suddenly appeared like paradise when the trees fell away to vistas that suddenly stretched to a shining belt of sea. He wore the hardship of the journey like a hair shirt. The wonder and the deprivation and the physical toll were bringing him closer to God. It was all sanctification. Anna, thank you. And that, of course, describes what happens as the family arrives in, in the new colony of South Australia. Your first two novels were historical fiction based on true crime stories in the 19th century. This one's also set in the 19th century, the 1836, 1838 in Prussia and then in South Australia, and it's also historical fiction. But unlike the other two, it's not linked to a true story. Uh, as you've said somewhere, its allegiance is to the imagination rather than the archive. And I wondered how liberating was that for you, not to be tethered to historical facts? It was, it was hugely liberating um, and it was also terrifying because, of course, the first thing that you realise when you, you decide to step away from fact um, you sort of untie yourself from the very close binds that I had sort of created in my methodology in the previous new books is that, you know, there is so much possibility. With imagination comes utter freedom and so many more choices to make because you're not necessarily following the events as they occurred in history. You, you're free to do what you like. So on one hand, I, I really relished that sense of creative freedom. And on the other hand, there was a period of time where I was completely paralysed by it as well. You grew up in the Adelaide Hills. I think you live there still, where much of the novel is set. The people from whom you descended were German-speaking immigrants who came to South Australia in the 19th century, as do Taya and Hannah and their families. 
How much did you know about those people when you started the research for this book? And where did you start? I knew a little. I, uh, I'm related to Prussian emigrants on my father and grandmother's side, and I had heard a little bit from her. Um, I also grew up very close to Handorf, which is quite a famous town here in South Australia for being uh, formed on, on land that was um, previously occupied by the Paramount people, owned by the Paramount people at a place they called Bakatila. And so I was always uh, I was always aware of the German heritage here because Handorf to this day is a place where you can go and eat sauerkraut and pork cocks and, um, you know, drink giant things of beer and, uh, you know, there's cuckoo clock shops and it's a little bit touristy now and it's sort of strayed a little bit from its original sort of cultural heritage but, um, you know, growing up, I was very familiar with that. And I think also just being a South Australian, there's so much from this aspect of Germanic culture that we have absorbed that perhaps isn't shared by other states. You know, there's things which are in our lexicon, like words like Metwurst and Fritz instead of Devon and Delis based on Delicatessen. Um, and uh, so I'd always sort of grown up amongst it and was slightly familiar, had certain stories from my grandmother and so on. But it really, uh, it really wasn't something that I had spent any great amount of time researching. I was um, initially when I wanted to write this book, I was curious in looking at place, I think, above culture. I was interested in to write about the Barossa area where so much of our wonderful South Australian wines come from. I was interested in food cultures. Um, you know, there's still so the bakeries here are still filled with all these fantastic German baked goods. And I was interested in these things because I knew I wanted to write about women and the the things that aren't necessarily easily found in history books, which is to say their approach to one another, to their community. And I found that so many of these stories of women were located in, in food culture books, in recipe books, in accounts of the way in which they planted vines and so on. So this was really something that immediately preoccupied me rather than, you know, it wasn't so much me deciding to go on ancestry and wanted to have a deeper examination of the land and the cultures within that I that I had grown up amongst. Hannah, in twenty seventeen, of course, Australia just to set the context, voted in favour of same-sex marriage, and your girlfriend proposed to you. How did that change the course of this novel? It changed it enormously. Initially, I, as interested as I was in place and the women who occupied these places once colonisation of South Australia had begun, I, uh, I had always thought that I wanted to write a novel about friendship. My previous two novels were quite dark in subject matter, and I knew that I wanted to turn my attention and focus on something that was you know, not necessarily superficial, but something which was more celebratory, something to honour. And I thought uh, quite early on, you know, I'm interested in all these food cultures, I'm interested in the Barossa and these places. What would have sustained these Prussian women after making such a harrowing journey out from Hamburg? Um, what of their friendships? I really was interested in the ways in which many of these women, surely being in such close communities, would have had very firm, fast friendships. And I was interested in exploring the ways in which these things might have helped them, might have had a lot of meaning in their lives, perhaps lifelong meaning. And so at this early stage of reading, and I wasn't really writing anything, I was just reading, I was thinking, okay, I want to write, I want to write a novel about two, two young women who are fast friends and really their friendship is the most significant relationship in their entire lives, despite the fact of having marriages and children and so on. And then 2017 happened. And my girlfriend, as you said, proposed to me and, and, you know, she's now my wife. I said yes. 
And this really got me reflecting on the things that I find so interesting in history, which is to say the things that aren't there. I'm always interested in absences and silences, and it was my curiosity about what had not been said in my previous two books, what had not been recorded, the perspectives which had not been shared that drove my writing. And as much as there wasn't great amounts of evidence of friendships between women and certainly not nothing of length detailing the nature of these friendships, I thought, well, there are bits and pieces and you can sort of quite easily surmise what might have happened in these communities amongst women. What isn't there and what is meaningful to me are stories of queer love, of same-sex relationships. And I knew immediately that it would be a massive challenge because here I was researching incredibly pious, religious, closed congregations um, where these sorts of things, if they were talking about it all, and I I even wonder if that was the case, would certainly have not been treated in a celebratory light. So it was, but at the same time, I thought, well, I'm I'm a modern novelist. I'm not writing a history book. I want to add to that representation. In some ways, this book then became about contributing a narrative that may well have existed within these communities, even though there is no evidence for them that I could find. And it was an incredibly freeing moment and an incredibly scary one. But ultimately, and I think also this was affected by having already written two books, I wanted to write a novel for myself and for my wife, uh, for my younger queer closeted self who really would have felt so much validation in a story like this. And for my wife, because really this book is so, and the love story within it is so much a testament to our own love story and the way I feel about her and the profundity I feel in our in our marriage. So it completely changed it. And once I decided that this friendship was not going to be a romantic friendship, it was going to be absolutely be a very clear-eyed love story, that's when I found the heartbeat to this novel and that's when everything started to really flow. And you've said that you used to wonder if there were books like this out there, stories of queer love stories, and you've just said, and I know you've said elsewhere, it would have been great for you as you were growing up if you'd had access to books like this. Were there any that you know of that you read? Were there any beautiful stories of queer love stories that you read as you were growing up or that you've read more recently that have influenced you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were, this isn't to say that there weren't novels available. I was never someone for whom, you know, I, I, I knew I had a very strong understanding of my own sexuality. I was quite religious myself in my teens of my own volition. And it was something that I think I, I repressed within myself. Um, also, I think because I don't, for instance, I don't identify as a lesbian, I would be much closer to, and queer is a label that I really like because it just sort of means that I'm not straight, which I definitely am not. But um, it's something which I think I've always experienced my own sexuality as being quite a, quite a mystery to myself. Um, and so I think having novels that could have embraced that particular kind of sexuality um, and also could have been a little bit more optimistic would have been helpful. So, for instance, one of the earliest novels I read with uh, queer characters was Sarah Waters' Fingersmith, which is a fantastic novel um, and wonderful and I absolutely devoured it. But um, it was at a remove, obviously, because of the nature of the story to my own experiences and my own feelings. And then when I was trying to find more, obviously, I read a lot of Sarah Waters books and they're fantastic, but many of her novels also, because they are historical and they need to be accurate to the times and they're contextualised by the ideologies of the times, 
there is, you know, quite a lot of punishment and there's some unhappy endings in there and there is sometimes a very strong sense of shame. Mm. And then, of course, you know, you think, okay, what's what else is classic out there? What can I read? And you pick up something like Radcliffe's whole well of loneliness. And I mean, if the title didn't warn me, you know, it's a it's quite it's a fantastic book. It, it belongs. It has a place in the canon of queer literature, of course, but it 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 didn't offer me any, I guess, greater understanding of myself, and it didn't offer any hope to me. It didn't. I didn't come out of reading something like that with a greater sense of acceptance, self acceptance, and so I really, in writing this book, wanted to have something that, and I knew this would be one probably the largest challenge of the book was a historical queer story because I think history is an important part in this. It's about having a sense that, you know, queer, I once had someone ask me when, you know, um, when gay people were invented, (laughs) they thought it was a modern phenomenon. And so I think it's quite important to sort of insert these kinds of narratives within a historical context to show that this is not a modern creation. Um, So I think the history, the historical aspect was important, but I knew that I would have my work cut out for me in setting this within a a religious community um, to write a novel that was, had characters who, one, were absolutely aware of their feelings for each other eventually, if not immediately, and were very, you know, open to themselves about that. And then two, did not contain any shame, whether Mm. coming from the characters themselves or from other characters or punishment. So I wanted in that way by avoiding those things to offer my younger self a narrative which was hopeful and I think on a higher level kind of honoured it and celebrated it Mm. as nothing less than or nothing to be kept hidden but something that was almost divine. Mm. Hannah, let's talk for a moment about the religious context because I was interested in this. Now, I don't know very much about the old Lutherans. I'm not sure if my listeners do or not, but could you just tell us a little bit about the context? I gather from your book that this was a group, they lived in K in this little city in Prussia, and they were regarded as dissenters. They were persecuted. Could you give us a little bit of context about that? Why why were they persecuted? What were their beliefs? So uh, this is true. So um So we'll say initially that in the book, all of my old Lutheran communities come from Kay, but in reality, they were throughout Prussia. Um, Essentially, the King of Prussia, King Frederick William III, uh, tried to initiate a united church of all the Reformed and Protestant religions within Prussia. Initially, this was something that he decided to do to ostensibly unify the Protestant churches. Um, He thought of it probably, I think, just prior to to 1800, the year 1800, and it took about 20 years of consultation and various things to produce a Union Church service book. So this was a new book which described various rites, um, uh, you know, rituals, uh, the words that must be spoken, and people issue with it. So the main thing that many Lutheran communities took issue with was the description of the way in which the Eucharist must be administered to the congregations, which was to say the, the wine and the bread, um, often people refer to it as communion in the Catholic Church and so on. In this new service book, it was never stated that the real presence of Christ existed within these elements. And this was the major thing that many Lutheran congregations took issue with, because in some ways, theirs was a very literal interpretation of the Bible. And, uh, And so this created dissent and a general refusal of people not to join the Union Church. Pastors refused to join it. 
as the years progressed, there were more and more ramifications for those who refused to accept the Union Church. Initially, people were able to dissent. They were able to continue practising in the way that they wished. However, as the years went on, the king became increasingly oppressive and restrictive in his measures. People were banned from, you know, holding the old Lutheran ways, which is one of the reasons why they became known as old Lutherans, and uh, and people became to be punished and fined and imprisoned. Um, hence the, the reason why so many of these old Lutherans sought emigration to places such as Russia, North America, and also the colony of South Australia. So let's talk a little bit about Hannah, first of all. You've said that she's a nature's child. She has a special quality, doesn't she? That apart from the fact that she's she's quite distinctive in a number of ways, she hears sounds that other people don't. She hears the sound of sunlight. She hears the sound of falling snow. Tell us a little bit about that. Now, I've always thought of it as a curious kind of synesthesia whereby Hannah really feels like she's communing with nature because mm. she hears nature speaking to her. She hears mm. the trees singing to her. Um, the fall of light make it take on a particular sound. And because of this, her experience of the, the natural world is very keen and exciting and feels very personal and intimate to her as well. And really, in so many ways, becomes one of the ways in which she experiences God um, she doesn't feel that this sort of spirituality is limited to the services which are now being held in the forest. Indeed, she feels it even more so because they are held in the forest. You know, she feels the presence of God in the ways in which she finds that everything is connected and she herself belongs to this natural world. And so she becomes quite miserable when eventually she's sort of being ushered back into the house to learn all the domestic work that she will need to be a good wife and mother. Um, she really just yearns to to be outside because really that's where she she feels that she can be less lonely, I guess. I wanted to ask you about that. Her mother, so Hannah, we should say, is 16 and her mother has clear expectations that it's getting towards time for her to marry and find a husband. She says to Hannah, your future will be uncertain without the security of marriage. One of the domestic tasks that her mother teaches her is white work, a form of embroidery, embroidery white on white. And I, I thought it was interesting. It seems to me that there's a recurring theme of needlework throughout the book, apart from the beautiful cover there are a few images. I've, I've picked out just a few. At one point, you talk about those who decide to stay behind in Prussia and not to go to South Australia as having made that decision because they have embroidered themselves into K. They could not bear to burst their stitches. A another time, there's a lovely description. When Taya smiles at Hannah, Hannah feels it pull through my spine like a thread. I'm wondering if you'd like to talk a little bit about that use of the imagery of needlework. It was something that I think came up very organically in the writing of this book. I think when you are writing about women from this time, uh, as a writer, just personally speaking, I tend to veer towards the the activities that allowed a modicum of self-expression because that's where you find small differences or little, you know, glimpses of rebellion or, you know, creative impulse. Um, that's why I'm always so interested in cooking. I love cooking myself and so I'm really interested in food cultures because I love the ways in which the simple domestic act of creating food for a family can show so much about a, a woman's character, particularly within that historical context. Um, and I think the true, uh, the same is true of, of crafts. And, and one of the things I encountered quite early on in my research was this idea of, of white work. 
And I was fascinated by it because it's it's embroidering white thread on a white background. But I was so interested by this because I I knew that the white on white was supposed to be emblematic of a kind of modesty and a sort of, you know, cleanliness and a godliness. Um, and I also had heard from a local historian, just the, she who was quite, um, who was elderly and had had many friendships with people who had been directly related to those who had come off these boats of emigrants, other German women. And she told me how one of the main qualities that ran through them all was that they could never praise themselves. They could never accept a compliment. So this kind of, you know, uh, this kind of diminishing of self was even present in this white work where they were allowed to express mm. themselves. But I was really interested in it and I saw some white work and it's incredibly beautiful. But at the same time, it just seemed to me such a, a wonderful metaphor for the presence of queer love as well throughout history is that it's there all along, but from a distance you can't see it. Uh, you have to you have to look closely, and there you find that self expression. There you find that beauty, but it's it's not something that you're going to regard at a distance or you know from across the room. That's a beautiful image. I I hadn't realised that. I'm so glad I asked you about that. <laughs> now we've talked a little bit about Taya as well. She's part of a new family, the Eichenwalds, and the first we hear of her, her mother describes her as dancing to her own music, which is a lovely description that immediately catches Hannah's attention because she dances to her own music as well. But before, before we talk more about Taya and Hannah, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about Anna Maria, her mother. Now, the other women in the community are suspicious of her, and later they make some pretty awful accusations against her. Tell us a little bit about Anna Maria, what it is that makes her different, and also about a special book she has, which is called The Sixth and Seventh Book of Moses. So in my research, I uh, started hearing a few things about uh, the Vens, which was a Slavic minority who lived in Prussia at this time. Today, they're known as Sorbs. And I was so interested in, interested in Vendish culture because amongst, they were, they were old Lutherans as well and subscribed to the same beliefs, attended in, within the same congregations, were very much integrated into the Germanic, sort of the Germans um, living in Prussia. And yet at the same time were sometimes regarded with suspicion because alongside their religious beliefs, they also had what many others called superstitions. Um, they had particular kinds of folk, folk stories that believed. Um, many of them knew a lot about witchcraft and were sometimes said to practice it themselves. And when I say witchcraft, that goes from um, the use of herbs to treat small daily uh, ailments right through to, you know, demon invocation and black masses and so on. And so you can imagine as a novelist when I stumbled across this sort of allusions to witchcraft and, and you know, forbidden texts of magic and so on, I thought, oh, I have to I have to read this. I have to find out what they're talking about. I am very interested in these things. And mm. on one hand it's because, you know, everyone loves, you know, a witchy story. But on the other hand too, I think um, when you have something as contentious as this in a, in a historical community, um, I think it reveals a lot about fears and prejudices and also desires and things like that. So I'm always curious and superstition. I'm always curious in supernatural stories, but not for themselves 
just unto themselves, but because they of what they say about the people and their attitudes towards them. And so when I encountered this text, and I found so much information, I couldn't avoid it. I found stories of coffins, coffins being dropped three times to ensure that the devil was, you know, exercised. I discovered, you know, stories of people in the Barossa without children being spied on because they always had milk and they were seen, you know, milking ropens over the back of a chair and milk coming from the ropens. People wearing red ribbons around their neck when they walked past a certain that was so much stuff. So on one hand, I thought, okay, this is absolutely interesting. I have to incorporate it. And on the other hand, I felt that I was obliged to because it seemed to form such a huge part of these people's existence. And so that was how I came up with the character of Taya's mother, Anna Maria. She is a vend in the book. She belongs to this community. And Anna Maria, Anna Maria really just took off as soon as I put her down on paper. Mm. She's a wonderful character. And I think she sort of ended up becoming um you know, the embodiment of a lot of the sort of vendish culture. But at the same time, she, she as Taya's mother, acts as a contrast to Hannah's own mother and is therefore, you know, in her acceptance of, you know, greater mysteries and her willingness to be a little bit more accepting. She's much more sensual. She loves food. She loves to cook. She laughs a lot. Um, she she is- also has a lovely, playful relationship with her own husband, which is quite different from the relationship between Hannah's parents. She does, yeah. They really seem to like each other and they do. shocked at the way that they, you know, touch hands and things like that. So I, I, she she really was a, a wonderful character, right, and she remains one of my favourites and favourites in the novel. But she saying, yeah, she, some, she sort of comes to embody everything that Hannah wishes was present in her own mother. Um, and therefore, you know, says a lot about Hannah and, and her own private yearnings for acceptance. As Hannah and Taya's friendship matures into what becomes a very profound love, Hannah is, is quite overwhelmed by this. She can't stop thinking about Taya, about how she looks, about something she said. She says at one point that she really wants to tell her mother, her own mother, about this, about her feelings for Taya. But she understands, you say, in some deep, unexamined way, that she must never tell her mother. Why not? And how does that feel for Hannah, not being able to speak to her mother about this great love? There's been a few things earlier in the novel where Hannah has felt shamed by her mother without anything ever really being openly spoken. Um, She has a twin, Matthias, and they are very close. Matthias does understand Hannah, and when they were very little, they insisted on sleeping next to one another in the same bed. And then as obviously they grew older, their parents pushed them apart. And Hannah, who sleeps badly, uh, sometimes still sneaks in to sleep next to Matthias. And one morning she's discovered lying there by her mother. And her mother never says anything. She just says it's inappropriate. But there's her manner and the disgust on her face is enough for Hannah to know that she's done something terribly wrong. And I think that... um, I think that's also true for when Hannah, initially she's just so drawn to Taya and she considers their friendship exactly that, just a friendship. But I think even on a subconscious level, she's aware of the intensity of her feelings. And she, and similarly, she's aware that if she were to tell her mother as much as she wants to because she's, she's excited by this, she knows that her mother will probably meet these feelings with, with um if not disgust, then concern, I think. And um, and so I was interested in examining those first stirrings, I think, when you become aware of feelings for someone of the same sex and kind of implicitly, subconsciously understand that you need to keep it quiet because you're probably not, there's something, even you yourself know that this is a little bit different to a friendship. 
uh, and your desire to talk about it is motivated by things other than just general commentary on a new on a new friend. Hannah, let's talk a little bit about nature and the role that it plays in this book. So in all of your three novels, you write very powerfully and very beautifully about the natural world. There's many, many examples of this in this beautiful book, In Devotion. You're writing about nature back in Prussia. You write about the ocean as they make the trip over. You write beautifully about South Australia. You read that opening passage with, with some of the, that lovely language describing South Australia and its natural surroundings. A couple of my favourites related to the ocean and, and the boat trip from Prussia to South Australia. One of them is when Hannah and Taya together see the ocean for the first time as the boat sets off. And Hannah says, I was soul struck by the immensity of the ocean. My spirit rose in recognition of its divinity. I felt time dissolve in the arm of of the ocean's brilliant, salted constancy. And then there's another, I thought, echo of that. When Hannah sees a whale burst through the surface of the sea, she says, I felt my soul briefly lift out of my body as though wonderstruck it had soared into the divine. The whale was divine. Could you talk to us a little bit about the divinity of nature? I was interested in writing about landscape in this way and sort of placing it on a divine pedestal, I think because that's how I experience it. Um, as a child, I loved to be outside. I was very fortunate, as you said earlier, to to be raised on Paramount Country and the Adelaide Hills, um, which is exquisite. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I've returned here after living overseas and interstate. And, you know, it really gave me a strong appreciation of nature um, and a familiarity with it, a certain sense of being intimate with it in, in that I, when I was very little, it felt animated and I felt like I belonged to it. It gave me a strong sense of calm. And really, even to this day, if I'm, if I'm sort of having any trouble or challenges or I'm too much in my own mind there's nothing really I've experienced so far that can't be at least alleviated by going out and being in nature and so I was really I writing about it in this way and making Hannah a character who experiences it as a divine and experiences in a slightly different way to her peers and, and her parents was really initially just a means for me to write about landscape in the way that I want to, um, to try and distill all this incredible ineffable qualities into prose. Um, and then as I continued to do that, it became more and more ingrained into who Hannah is and, and what motivates her and ended up sort of affecting the plot in many ways as well. So it really just started as, you know, me doing it because I found it a joyful thing to do, creatively speaking. And then, yeah, and then I found all these little connections. I don't I don't tend to plot my novels out very much. I'm very much sort of flying by the seat of my pants. I do a lot of work in revisions and rewriting. So my first write is often an emotional one. It's about getting a sense down or the atmosphere or a feeling, an emotion. And then I sort of step back and often I see patterns and I see recurring themes and symbols and then I sort of, you know, pair back the, the you know, unnecessary work and sort of follow, follow those instinctive lines throughout it. And then nature in this book was certainly one that became some, some of the strongest sort of patterns that emerged in my earliest drafts and something that, that yeah, definitely ended up following through right to the very end. Let's talk now about colonisation. So the group of people who came from Prussia settled, as you said, in Handorf, a, a 
real city and the Barossa Valley, which is land that had been occupied for millennia and never ceded by the Paramount people. What were you able to find out about the relations between these German settlers in the 19th century and the local Paramount people? The relationship between the, the Prussians and the Paramount, there is actually quite a lot of documentation, a lot of local histories, um, unpublished histories, online blogs, all these sort of family histories, which allude to sort of um, the fact that the Prussians and the Paramount initially were curious and maybe a little bit wary of each other. But in that first year after the Prussians arrived at Bakatila and called it Handorf, um, became one of generosity on behalf of the Paramount people. The Prussians had endured a six-month boat journey and um, it had been, some were much worse, but this one was still quite difficult. There was a great deal of sickness on board. People died. People suffered a great deal from scurvy. And it took them three months or so, sometimes up to five for some families, to eventually travel up to the Mount Lofty Ranges where they would, where they would form their village. And this journey, of course, in its very brutal physical nature, on, um, you know, made by people who still were unwell, completely reduced them in many ways. Um, Adelaide at this time was also a place where there was very little food production. It was mainly occupied by people trying to um, buy land and settle up and create stations, but no one was really uh, working the land in a sort of a Western sense. Um, there was very little fresh food available. And so the Prussians were forced to rely on the leftover ship's rations. Um, there was no, they couldn't just pop down to Adelaide and pick up some, you know, veggies. Um, and they were in a pretty poor state, weren't they, the leftover rations? Poor. Yeah. They, I mean, this was the ship biscuit, which had already been scrubbed of mould when they went through the tropics and things like that. So, and then that winter, they sort of arrived and just as they arrived, the rains come in those months in the Adelaide Hills and it was particularly cold. They had very little shelter. All the emphasis in terms of their labour and time was spent trying to uh, clear the land and put in a cash crop of wheat so they could start to pay off ship's debt. And many of them fell into quite a bad way. And these local sources uh, of information often allude to the fact that it was the Paramount who essentially saved, saved many from starvation by showing them local food resources, by sharing their own resources, by showing them how they could climb trees and kill possums uh, when spring came and summer, the yam daisies that could be dug and eaten and so on. And many credited the Paramount with, yeah, with saving the congregation. But at the same time, all of these sources are written by you know, white people, um, either those who experience the event, these events themselves or their descendants. And I was so wary of that because implicit with all of this, I mean, you can't get away from prejudice whenever you're looking at any kind of source. Everything's written by a human hand. And I was very aware that I wasn't getting really the other side of the story. But I did know just through fact <laughs> that, you know, they're, they're just the, the, formation, the fact of a formation of a Prussian village on Paramount Country and the required decimation of what was kangaroo hunting grounds and, you know, the damming of creeks and, and all the sort of ways in which we can degrade and change the environment to suit farming practices that don't really belong in a particular country like this necessarily forced the Paramank uh, to find their resources elsewhere. It completely displaced them. And alongside, in the background, you know that there's epidemics of smallpox, you know that there's other ways in which the, the Aboriginal populations are being affected by the increasing, you know, encroaching presence and um, ignorance of the white settlers. 
as well as outright hostilities as well, which were absolutely occurring elsewhere. So while I could find very little evidence of outright hostility in the sense that we might understand it in terms of physical violence, there was still a violence at work. There was still hostility at work. Um, so in writing this book, you know, narrated as it is from essentially a white settler, I was looking at ways in which I could avoid adopting those same prejudices and ideologies. And it was a challenge, but I think that was one of the main reasons why I took some creative risks in this book to try and ensure that um, nothing was being celebrated about white settlement, that it was actually a very sort of um, ambiguous if not uh, sort of con condemning account of, of the Prussians taking away land. Hannah, in your acknowledgements, you thank Elder Mandy Brown for sharing her knowledge with you. And I wondered who is she and, and what did you learn from her? Uh, Mandy Brown is a local elder um, and she is someone who very generously gave her time to chat with me. We spoke um, throughout the drafting of this novel and in our conversations covered many topics, um, but she also did me the great honour of reading a lot of the passages which looked at the representation of the Paramount people. Um, but what I also um, really value from our time together is the ways in which she opened my eyes to um, spiritual connection to country, but also the ways in which the Paramank uh, were open to the supernatural. And um, without sort of going into the book and spoiling too much of the plot, this became very instrumental in certain passages and aspects of the book in ways in which I would represent the Paramank alongside other events that were occurring in the novel. That was the next thing I was going to ask you about the supernatural. I hadn't realised that that came from the beliefs of the Paramount people? Aspects of it did. It was a lot of it. Some elements of the supernatural had already worked themselves in there. And I think one of the things that Elder Mandy Brown did for me was uh, ask me what the Paramount would have made of it and the ways in which they might have brought a different perspective to the things that were happening. And that was a really, really wonderful way. It was basic. She gave me a whole new perspective, essentially, and that was a, a fantastic gift and I remain very grateful to her. Um, yeah, she's a, she's a wonderful, wonderful person. Let's finish then by talking about this supernatural otherworldly element. I'm not going to say anything more than that because we don't want there to be any spoilers, but let's just say there is a supernatural element in the book. And I wondered, how did you enjoy writing about that? I loved it. I loved it. It was wonderful. It was probably the freedom that we spoke of, uh, you know, earlier where I thought, oh, my goodness, I can do anything, eventually resulted in me incorporating this, these supernatural elements. In some ways it was a natural, you know, I could look retrospective uh, retrospection is a wonderful thing and I can look back and say oh it was of course it was going to end up in this place but at the time you know I was encountering all this wonderful all these wonderful you know resources about grimoires and the vendish and superstitions and then I thought I can I can do anything I want these there are ways that I can solve these problems of historical prejudice or or shame in queer love um, if I take a sort of a creative leap and really embrace you know, elements of the supernatural. And that was something that um, I really enjoyed doing once I started doing. I had a lot of fun writing those sections of the novel. I wondered if there were any books that you'd read that had inspired you or whether it all came from your own imagination. Probably on a subconscious level. I'm sure there's stuff I've read which has contributed to it. But really, I have a very strong memory of watching a video clip of Florence and the Machine uh, where she 
this sounds so strange, but this is the way things can enter your mind and kind of stay there. And in this video clip, she's singing, obviously, and it's sort of this um, a, a fight is occurring. And as this fight is occurring with people standing on, she's touching their faces and she's present and suddenly she's young and suddenly she's old again. And there was something in the timelessness of that video clip that really struck a chord with me in a way that I couldn't even really articulate, but I think thematically has popped up again and again in the book. So, you know, who, who knows where inspiration comes from? But yeah, certainly watching that video clip, you know, rang a bell in my head. Hannah, I wanted to close by asking you about something you said you were very conscious of, writing a queer love story. You've said that initially the story was more conventional, but you decided that you wanted to break it open because you said you needed to avoid it becoming a narrative of shame. Would you like to talk a bit about that? I think that this was something that became quite apparent when I started doing some early drafts. Um, shame kept creeping into the characters in a way that was displeasing to me uh, as a queer person and also in a way that I felt wasn't serving anyone, wouldn't serve any reader. Uh, there wasn't the joy and the celebration that I wanted in these interactions. And so wanting to avoid shame, wanting to avoid punishment or retribution or just sadness really within a level of sort of, um, you know, sexual repression was something that forced me to think of other ways in which I might approach this kind of love story. And that's what I mean by breaking it open. I knew that I needed to be bold. I needed to think of a different way to tell this story and something needed to happen that would allow me to completely avoid all of that negative things and all of that would allow me to avoid all of those negative aspects which historically have been part of the queer experience and instead turn it into something which is elevated and filled with love which is pure and wholesome on the highest level. Um, and so that's what I mean by that. When I say break it open, I mean completely step outside of my comfort zone as a writer and try something absolutely new. Hannah, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's just been wonderful to hear you talk about this beautiful novel. Congratulations. Good luck. It's early days for it now. I know that I hope I've been saying this to other people recently. I hope that you get the chance to appear at writers' festivals and see the response of readers in person rather than just online. So I just wish you very good luck with promoting it and talking about it and just enjoying your success. And thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much, Nicole. I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.